I'm not sure this is accurate. I had to turn this back here, Jesse said. Is that mm-hmm. Yep. And now it's recording. It's just been recording for eight seconds. Okay. Hey guys. Oh, okay. John the Baptist. I keep putting this in my pocket and turning it off as I do that. Let's see if I can do that again. John the Baptist, let's take a minute and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us learn some good things. Lord, I love your word. I just love it so much. I love how it speaks truth into our lives, but not just an intellectual truth. It speaks life-changing truth into us. And I pray today that you'd help me to do a really, really good job teaching, but far beyond that. I pray that you would help us today to be great students of the Word. Great learners of the Word who say, how do I live this out? Change our minds, but then change our lives. I pray that around these tables, these girls will just feel like they're drawn into one another, where they're just growing together. I pray especially for the tables where they don't know each other. It just takes time to develop relationship. Would you help them? to quickly bond with one another. And everything you do today, we'll be really, really careful to praise you. In your holy, precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Girls, your table just moved up here. So I'll let you join these guys, okay? They thought they were alone, so you come on up and join them. The first couple of months or couple of weeks, it takes a while to get people situated. So, Carol? I can't hear you, Carol. Oh, there's an accident on John Deere Road. That's right. That's a lot of people are having a hard time getting here. Yeah. Thanks, Carol. I heard that. I forgot to make that announcement. Okay. And girls, they're going to make an act. Do you want to join this one or this one? Either one. Heather Shepard, are you here? Heather? We need one more person to be able to open all the nurseries. And so if anybody would like to get your time out of the way, would you like to follow Darcy? Right here. Joanne will do that for us. Thank you, Joanne, so much. Okay, I think we're almost getting ready to start here. Our tables are getting filled up now, maybe more than what you wish they were. Thank you, John Deere And the bridge, too, this morning. We have to come 80. Okay, a fascinating character in the Bible, John the Baptist. Um, Raise your hand to tell me how many of you around your table said uh, we knew at least five things about John the Baptist. Let me see your hands. How many say we knew less than five things about John the Baptist? Well, at least I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm glad or sad about that. I'm glad because you're going to learn a lot of stuff today. So this is going to be really great. Like I said, John the Baptist, I had to put all of this material in this bucket of information in my computer and then began to say, what can I pull out of this that will touch your life, that will touch my life? And I think we have some really great, great things. His background, I'm going to give you as an assignment. You see on your note guides there, it says Luke 1, 5 to 25. That's his background about his mom and his dad and uh, what happened when he was in the womb. 
he, and how he was predicted that he was going to be significant in the Messiah's life. When we first see him as an adult, he was probably around 30, and he was the first prophet in 400 years. Just take your Bible and open it to the Old Testament, to the end of the Old Testament, which would be Malachi. Malachi wasn't the last book written, but it's the last one written in ours, and it, it does stand as the Bible, as the book that was written about 430 before, years before Christ. So from there, until you see Matthew, which was also not the first gospel written, but it still serves as a word picture, from there to Matthew were 400 years called the silent years. Where God didn't speak through the prophets. We don't know a lot about what happened in those years. But then 400 years later comes this guy who was a little different. Number one there is your blank. He was a little different. Take your Bible. Turn to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. He was a little different. Let's see what he looked like. If you did know anything about Matthew, you did know this part. Matthew 3, verse uh, verse 4. We'll find out more about it, but let's see what he looked like first of all. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. I mean, just picture this guy for a minute. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. I mean, picture this guy. He probably produced just some simple curiosity in people's lives, didn't he? Just think today, if somebody came and they began um, prophesying and preaching, and you saw a guy who looked completely different than us, it might produce some curiosity. Now, it probably wasn't quite as weird as what we think, because how he was dressed tended to be the dress of the poor people of the day. It also tended to be the dress of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so these people to whom he came didn't know about the prophets. In fact, um, in 2 Kings chapter 1, it talks about Elijah. And this is exactly how he was dressed and the stuff that he ate. So John the Baptist comes on the scene looking like the Old Testament prophet, looking very different than the common, more upper class person. And it was probably, partly, he was doing this in light of the contrast of the current leaders of the day, the religious leaders. The current religious leaders of the day, I have it on your notes there, were tended to be greedy, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They tended to be greedy, selfish, and preoccupied with winning the praise of the people. And so probably, partly, John the Baptist comes on the scene looking like this to symbolize the sharp break with the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who preferred luxury and position. And he comes looking a little different 
we might say even a little weird. I began thinking about that, about John the Baptist. And one of the ways I read the Bible, one of the ways I want you to read the Bible is to say, uh, this is what... This is what the Word says. What does that teach me about God or Jesus or the the Holy Spirit? And then how do I live as a result of that? Trying to take the Scriptures and always make them relevant to my life. So I did that with John the Baptist. I thought, Lord, what can I learn from just his simple dress and his simple eating? Now, I don't think God's calling us to eat locusts and wild honey. So what symbolically would perhaps God be saying to me and to you? So I put it on your notes. How often do we as followers of Christ are so afraid of being perceived as a little different? We want to fit in. We want to be accepted by everyone. We don't want to stand out as being different. We have this need to fit in with people so strongly sometimes that it causes us to hide parts of our faith. And here's John the Baptist who comes on the scene and he says, I don't care what you think about how I look, how I dress, what I eat, what I say. In fact, you'll find out a little bit. His words backed up what he believed. And I wonder about you and about me. This was real convictional to me because I began examining my life to say, where do I struggle with this? Where do I still want to fit in so much at times, maybe even small times, maybe what I might perceive as small issues, but perhaps God would say, you're trying to fit in too much. You're trying to be accepted too much. You're trying to look like everybody else so much. I'm not talking even so much about what you, what your clothes are necessarily. But we're just a lifestyle of saying, I want everybody to like me. John Baptist said, I don't care if you like me or not. This is what God says. Around your table, I want you to see if you can come up with any ways where perhaps you struggle with this. Where it might show up in your life. Where it perhaps might change your the things you say about Jesus or don't say about Jesus. The way you live or don't live. Where might it affect you? I hope that's enough for you to understand what I'm trying to pull out. Let's see if it is or not. Go. Do you ever struggle with having to wanting to fit in too much? Go. And tell specifically where. Good discussion. Um, I want you to think about this this week. Because I'm going to think about this this week. I... I think we do this more than what we think we do. I have some friends um, who are who uh, we talk about this quite a bit about how it's easy when I'm with a certain group of people to be very Christianese and just to talk so much about Jesus. But am I the same way with everybody? Now, I'm not talking about. Careful because you say, I want to be sensitive to the spirit. I want to be, um, you know, that there are some people if you can't, you know, you don't beat them over the head. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about where we go, I'm different when I'm with different people. Maybe I use certain words here that I would never use with my Christian friends. Or maybe my spending, maybe my um, um, wanting to just fit in causes me to be different. 
I just want you to put like a star by that somewhere. Just to use it as part of your assignment this week. To say, I'm going to take this before the Lord. And I'm just going to ask him. Where in my life do I tend to be a person who tries to fit in with certain people, act a certain way here, instead of maybe being the holy person that God calls me to be everywhere? Okay, kind of running that into the ground, but I just really, really think we need to pursue that more. Oh my goodness, I love this next point. It will be great discussion stuff. It will be very um, convicting to us, and I love stuff that's convicting. Second thing about John the Baptist, he preached the gospel of repentance. The gospel of repentance. Go back to chapter 3 again. Verses 1 to 2. Matthew 3, 1 to 2. He preached the gospel of repentance. In those days, and so after this 400 years of silence... John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Mark chapter 1, John, uh, Mark says it this way, that John the Baptist said, A baptism of repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Now this idea of repentance, that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to stay on this point for just a couple of minutes, because I think it's something that the Christian world really needs to talk about more. This idea of repentance is a very churchy word. On your notes there, I put some definitions about it, because I know, even as I listen to one table today, that a lot of you are new to this churchy stuff, and you need to get some definitions of what we're talking about when we say certain things. And even those of us who've been around the church a long time, perhaps we need to make sure we know what we're talking about. So what's the Bible mean when it says repentance? It means to turn about... It means a deliberate change of mind resulting in a change of direction in thought and behavior. That's a great word picture, isn't it? I'm walking this way. I come to the place of repentance. I have a change of behavior that causes me to walk the opposite way. It's not merely an intellectual change of mind, but a radical transformation of the entire person. When Jesus talks about repentance, when Paul talks about repentance, when the apostles, when Peter talked about repentance, they're not just talking about saying, yes, I know I have sinned, but rather a radical transformation of the entire person that comes when Jesus comes, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and forgives us of our sins and makes us new creations. There should be a radical transformation. It also means this. It's a fundamental turnaround Involving mind and action and includes overtones of grief and regret. Of grief and regret. I put that next paragraph because I think this is really important for us to get this part. Repentance is profound sorrow. Sorrow, you could also say regret, sadness. And in the original language, it carries with it the idea of to pant, to moan, or to groan. Oh my goodness. Does that typify how you feel or felt about being a sinner? 
Our modern Western culture, when it comes to repentance, we go, we come to Jesus, we pray this little prayer, and we say, oh, great, I'm forgiven now, I'm a new creation. Oh, excuse me, I got a little bored right there. (laughs) Biblically, repentance is all about saying, I sinned against a holy, righteous God, and that sin caused Jesus Christ to get murdered on a cross. I am profoundly sad about that, so much that it makes me pant with sorrow, groan with sorrow, moan with sorrow. I'm afraid, and that results then in us turning away from it, I'm afraid we can become really complacent about this idea of repentance in the Christian world. I wonder if we become so familiar with it that we become immune to its significance. Reminded me of a story that I think I may have told in here before. But you've probably forgotten it, or the rest of you haven't heard it. So I can tell it again. I was in Africa um, several years ago, and I had been—we had been out in the bush. We were getting ready to come home, and we were um, the last day there at this little resort kind of thing, kind of uh, really getting ready to come back home. Being near the um, in Livingston, being near where there a lot of wild animals in different places. So I was at a restaurant for breakfast that morning. Our whole team was. And I was sitting there having breakfast at this outdoor restaurant. And about from where I was sitting to where that yellow wall, orange, yellow, whatever that is, wall, there was a a kind of a fence, not that high. It was like about as high as the soundboard. And behind that fence, I was having devotions. And I looked up, and I saw this gigantic elephant. This massive elephant, and then I saw the mother elephant come over, and then I saw like three or four young elephants walking around the mom and the dad. And I'm going, Oh my goodness! I mean, there was this little, uh, little, not even a real fence, but just kind of this makeshift fence. And I went, Oh my goodness, I'm not at the zoo, I'm just like looking at these elephants from here to there, and I was blown away by it. So I went to pay my bill. And the guy, the little African guy, was probably about at where Rachel's table is right there. So he was that far from the elephants. And he was facing me, and there was that little screen in back of him. And then he was an African guy. And I, in my um, American tourism kind of thing, I was going, oh my goodness. I looked up and I saw these elephants. And look, and I was just going on and on and on about these elephants. And he went, oh yes. There are elephants. We see them all the time. And I thought, oh my goodness, I wonder how long you have to see elephants all the time before you lose track of the fact that these are elephants! Almost like an arm's length away from you! And it struck me, that's how Christians live most of their lives. So immune, so desensitized, that we go... Oh, yes, I've been saved. I repented. Oh, yes, I see it all the time. It's there. I go to church all the time. I go to heart strings all the time. And we become so complacent that that idea of being people who are regretting nailing Jesus to the cross, who are panting and groaning with sorrow, who are saying, I am so sorry for my sin, Lord Jesus, that I'll turn away and walk away from that sin. And some of you felt that at at the day you got saved. 
but you don't feel it much anymore. And so when when we walk through a day of selfishness or impatience or uh, uh, temper tantrums or or self-focused living, we go, oh yes, there are elephants there all the time. And I wonder what that must do to Jesus. And I wonder what essentially that really does to our love relationship with our Savior. And I wonder if many times we need to get alone with the Lord long enough to say, where is my sin, my deliberate sin, hurting you, Lord Jesus? If you'll show it to me, I'm going to get before you long enough for you to make me aware that this is, this should cause sorrow. This should cause me shame. Now, I'm not talking about living with uh, something that's been forgiven where you go, you know, uh, 15 years ago I had an abortion, so today I just still feel so horrible about it. I'm not talking about stuff that's completely forgiven and that's wiped away. But I'm talking about the fact that I just don't think Christians really repent much anymore. We pray simple prayers and we say, "Um, yeah, I'm sorry for that. But the biblical concept of repentance is much deeper. I think our society pushes us to eliminate even the thought of sin. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want you to round your table to answer the question that I put there. If repentance is so critical to our growth and our relationship with Christ, why is it done so little by Christians? Why do we have such a... Uh, what's the word, kind of a fluff idea when it comes to really being sad, sorrowful, regretful over sin. Why? Name three or four or five reasons. Go. Real quickly, would you real loudly give me five answers that you shared around your table? Why don't we live out this biblical understanding of repentance more. I heard, uh, Lita, what was your answer? We're so... It's hard, it's uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. We don't like stuff in our culture that's uncomfortable in any way. What's another reason we don't look at repentance as deeply as the word does? Sherry said, we compare. And so we say, my sin's not really that bad because I can show you my friend who's doing a lot worse. And so we just go, well, I don't really have to repent too badly over that because, too deeply over that because it's not really that bad. Give me one more. Habit. Habit. In what way? So comfortable with deliberate sin sometimes that we don't even recognize it. Come back to that in just a minute. That's so true. Bonnie, what was yours? So desensitized to sin. We'll come back to that one in just a minute, too. Um, I think I need to do some... uh, Oh, yeah. Repentance on your note-taking guides there. It means more than acknowledging a wrong, but adds the promise of changing in the future. It means, God, I'm not just sad, sorrowful over that, but it implies there's going to be life change in me. Charles Colson said it this way. He said, the gospel is the good news. Gospel literally is taken from a word that means good news. But the gospel must be the bad news of the conviction of sin before it can be the good news of redemption. Isn't that good? How do I ever really understand the gospel of the good news of redemption unless I understand the bad news that it means sin must be forgiven? But I wonder, do we really see sin as something that God hates? Or do we become casual to its ugliness? 
Everything in this society that we live in, outside of the church today, and even many denominations would be included in it, pushes us to eliminate the thought of sin. Everything worldly tries to cause us to feel casual about sin. I wonder, this is a question that comes to me often. Do I laugh about the very actions that sent Jesus to the cross? Think about TV shows today. The comedies. Do I sit there and laugh about the very things that sent him to the cross to be murdered? I was uh, packing the other night uh, for our move tomorrow and Friday. And I had uh, the TV on as I was packing. And the Indies were on. And I was um, almost mesmerized by how that part of our society, which is so impactful for our society, Hollywood, movies, TV, that influences us unbelievably in our culture. I was mesmerized by the fact that they have been able so much to do this very thing, take what caused Jesus to be murdered and cause it to be something that we laugh at or are enamored with, with these people. I uh, opened up uh, my one, uh, which John last me, because for probably 25 years I have taken TV Guide. I've done a subscri- subscription TV Guide to get it free, but I, he just thinks that's so funny that I, who stand so strongly against these things, still read TV Guide. And I tell him it's my way of keeping really in touch with, with secularization. I want to be able to see, I think it helps me to recognize what's happening so I can um, kind of preach against it. It may not make sense to you, but it, it, it grips me. I was reading about the new false shows and just overwhelmed with the amount of sin that is included in them. And then I read about one that I'm not even going to read all the words because I don't feel comfortable reading them out loud. But it did uh, nail this idea that I'm trying to talk about. There is going to be a... I have a reading contact in today, but evidently I need to go to the doctor and get it uh, redone because I can't even see with it. Uh, there's going to be a new show called Masters of Sex. It's taking Masters and Johnson from uh, the, what, the 50s or whatever, and they're making a show on HBO about it, and or on Showtime. And the guy who is playing... Um, Master, Masters, says the show features so many steamy scenes, both in the lab and in the bedroom, that Sheen, the, the star, admits to becoming somewhat immune to it all. I never thought I would get used to having, and then he tells uh, what, he's, what he is a part of in this scene, but it, I finally broke that barrier. Here's a secular guy saying, This is so blatant. I never thought I would get used to that. But now I've become, I've broken that barrier. (coughs) And that's what's happening in our society. And the sad thing is, Christians are breaking the barriers too. People watch things today because of um, our DVRs that they would never have gone to the movies to watch. People read things today that they would never have read, Christians never have read 10 years ago. 
and it just really scares me. It, 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 it makes me, um, my heart just clenches up. We don't hear much about repentance today, but repentance is always foundational for forgiveness. Always. Forgiveness comes as we repent. And I wonder, that question, that next one says, how about you? Do you sometimes find yourself becoming complacent over deliberate actions of sin? Or do you still have this profound sense of regret and sadness over anything that's sinful? And what does your answer say about what you believe about sin? I'm going to give you about three minutes to talk about that. I don't think that you maybe have answered that in the last question. Do you find yourself, like the elephant story, growing more and more complacent about sin? Or do you still have this profound sense of regret and sadness over any time that you would deliberately walk in a sinful way? And if you still have that sense of profound sadness over it, what's helped you get there? So take just a few minutes around your table to say, do you have that great sorrow? Just chat for a minute. I wonder if partly our desire to fit in, point number one, our desire to fit in is part of the reason that we don't take more of a stand against sinful behavior. And the second thing, uh, someone mentioned it so well at one of the tables, when we can go days without spending time in the word and in prayer, we will become more and more desensitized. And as Carol said, we won't even notice it. For me, time in the Word and time in prayer and time reading uh, books that propel me to greater places of growth keep me focused on the cross, keep me focused on Jesus, keep me focused on holiness, keep me focused on righteousness. And veering from that, it gets easier and easier to become complacent. Uh, Charles Colson has another quote um, that I that's powerful to me. He says, repentance comes at a price. Repentance comes at a price. I think this is on your notes, right? We Christians are usually quick to say we want to be like Jesus. But if we are honest about what those familiar, f- familiar Sunday school words really mean, we'll see they compel us to adopt his attitudes. And that means belief in and submission to the scriptures. Instead, we find a thousand ways to resist their truth, to rationalize their calling on our lives. For deep inside, we know that obedience to the scriptures, without concern for consequences, can be penetrating and painful. It requires us to die to self and follow Christ. It demands that we recognize the sin in our lives and that we acknowledge and repent of that sin. A lot of you know that when I was growing up, my spiritual mentor was Mary McQuiston. She was an older lady in our church of 35 people. And she just had this hunger for God till the day that she died. She had this hunger for the word of God. She had this hunger for prayer. She was just through and through, to me, the most holy person that I'd ever known. And Mary would say this to us. She'd say, every day I ask the Lord to do a walk through my heart. Every day I ask the Lord to do a walk through my heart. 
And that, as I grew older, I began to realize that that's why Mary did exemplify such holiness. Because every day she was giving the Holy Spirit time to say, Okay, Lord, where do you want to change me? Where do I need to repent? Where do you want to transform me? Where do you want me to not live this way? And that resulted in such holiness. And I want to give an assignment to say sometime this week, get alone with him long enough, so more than 15 minutes, long enough where you can say, I'm here, Holy Spirit, for you to to do a walk through my heart, a walk through my life, a walk through my checkbook, a walk through my reading, a walk through my eyes, a walk through all of it. And if you'll expose things to me, I'm going to say, I'm a lame at the cross, and I'm going to say, help me to repent deeply over these things. Oh, you guys, I wonder if God would not... I know that he would love to call us to greater areas of holiness than we've ever experienced before. Greater areas of looking like Jesus than we've ever experienced before. I loved what Sean said last weekend in the sermon. I hope I have the right um, sentence. He said, what if every day we wake up believing that what I don't yet know about, or what I already know about God is nothing compared to what I can learn about Him. I think that was the essence of it. And I, John and I talked about it all week to say, doesn't matter how old I am, how long I've walked with Jesus, there's so much more to know, so much more to learn, so much more to grow, so much more to surrender. This walk of holiness. Well, number three, I love, 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 love this point. You're just going to love it too. I know you are. Trust me. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. Now maybe you say, that doesn't speak much to me. Just wait. Before we read this scripture in verse 3, I want to give you some background material on this. In ancient times, when the Bible was written, when a king would be coming to an area, to a city or a village or whatever, it required special preparation. That's your line there, your blank. It required special preparation. So they'd say the king is going to be coming and they would send a herald out before him, a messenger who would go before to prepare the road. Because you know the roads then were nothing like they are today. And so they would have the rocks and the stones and the trees and everything. And so these, these heralds would go out before proclaiming the king is coming. And they would make these paths that were so windy and messy. They would make them straighter. That was their job. So that the king could come. They'd make the, smooth, they'd make the crooked places smooth and straight. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3. First, I'm going to just start with verse 1 and take you through it, okay? What we've already read. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea. Those of you who've been to Israel, you can picture that desert. It's vast, amazing, mesmerizing. And he was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. This is he... This is who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Back in Isaiah, it was prophesied hundreds of years ago. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. What did, I, what did Isaiah prophesy about this guy who was going to come? The king's going to come. And somebody's going to have to go ahead of him to prepare the way. 
to get the road ready. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. And in Isaiah 40, it was in regards to who was going to clear the way in the desert for the exiles as they came back from the Babylonian captivity. But he was prophesying even ahead, saying, somebody's going to prophesy about the Messiah. Somebody's going to prophesy about the fact that the King of Kings is coming. And that was John the Baptist's job. And he does it by by preaching repentance. He says, repent, get ready, repent, get ready. And I love the symbolism here. Two things I want us to talk about. The first is someone has to prepare the way for someone to come to Jesus. Somebody prepares the way. And I wonder, just as a good relational question around your table, who prepared the way for you to come to Christ? I asked somebody this morning around the table. um, She's a new Christian. So who helped you? To who prepared, essentially, who prepared the way for you to come to Christ? And she pointed to her friend who invited her to a conference that opened the way for her to come to Christ. Who prepared the way for you to come to Christ? And what did he or she do that prepared the way? I would love for everybody to answer this. And so only take about uh, 30 seconds each. And then if the time is not up, you can go back and expand on your answer. But don't take the whole three or four minutes and tell your own answer. Because I want everybody to get this. So make sure, uh, table host, make sure everybody gets to answer it. Who prepared the way for you to come to Christ? And how did he or she do that? And go really, really deep in 30 seconds each. Here's John the Baptist preparing the way for the King of Kings. And somebody prepared the way in some way for you. But the second part of that that I want you to recognize is that you're preparing the way for somebody. You may not have any idea, but you're preparing the way for somebody. You know, maybe you've seen it before, the... The uh, what they call it, there's a name for it, but this this idea of the spectrum where if, let's say, um, this is where somebody gets saved, some of you might get the chance to actually lead somebody to Christ. I'm not good at this. Let me make sure I turn this on. Um, I am just not good at leading somebody to Christ. John says, Patty, if it were up to you, nobody would ever get saved until they're ready to be this, you know, A.W. Tozer. He says, you, you know, you just, you just wanted to count the cost so much that you never actually closed the deal. It's really true. Some people are really good at helping somebody get saved. And we tend to think that's what it means to prepare the way. We tend to think that it means i got to pray the prayer with somebody. But that's not all about preparing the way of the Lord. Some of us, some of us just, how did I put it on my notes? Some of us just shine a light. Some of us just, um, you know, you're at Walmart and somebody's having a tough time getting in the door and you just, because you love Jesus and you care about people, you just smile and help them in the door. You just shine the light. You don't get to say a thing about Jesus. Maybe you're at the restaurant and you're just really kind and gracious where somebody else is being mean and, and credit to them. You just shine the light. There are a zillion ways to shine the light. And then, and that just plants Something in somebody when they say, I yeah, that they heard they heard that those people are Christians, yeah. They're really nice people. Some people just do a little bit more in really planting seeds. You know, you don't get to lead anybody to Jesus, but you come alongside somebody else who's been planting some seeds, and somebody else has been planting seeds, and you plant a little bit more. You just say you say to somebody at work, I'm just gonna be praying for you. 
You're just planting some seeds. And you don't know how many other people planted the seeds and how much the Holy Spirit's working, and you just plant the seeds. And somebody else does, does maybe some more deeper planting. You, you just get to say a little bit more about Jesus than what other people have said into that person's life. Until sometime that person, and that happens over and over and over in somebody's life, until finally they come to the place where they, they receive Christ as their Savior. And then some of you, you get to take that person deeper. You get to take them more into, into really loving Jesus more deeply, more surrendered, more holy, more Christ-like. You might get to teach the Word, or you might get to pray over people, or you might get to do I don't know what. But you get to take people deeper. And deeper. And deeper. And deeper. And deeper. I don't know where you fall on the spectrum. And you don't either. With anybody. I mean it's pretty obvious when you help them to get saved. But like I don't know. How many times I'm planting a seed that somebody else has been planting. And it's just gonna, eventually going to get harvested. All I know is I want to be really, 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 really careful. To shine my light. Don't you? I want to be really, really careful not to snuff out the light in anybody's life. To make anybody go, if that's the way a Christian is, I don't want to be that. I want to plant as many seeds as I can. Not knowing what will result in all the time, but planting the seeds. And I want you to think for a minute in your life. Who do you think you might be planting seeds for? Who do you think you might be planting seeds for? If you are a um, wife... You got a husband. Think about that. I'm not talking about somebody just getting saved. I'm talking about somebody becoming more and more like Jesus. How can you um, help your husband to grow more like Christ? If you're a mom, if you're a grandma, you got an obvious place. If you're a worker, a co-worker, you got an obvious place. If you go to the mall, you got an obvious place. Everywhere you go, guys, everywhere we go, we have that ability to plant seeds or to help somebody become more like Jesus. So I want you just to kind of uh, try to pursue in your mind a minute around your table. Where might you be on this spectrum with somebody? And just talk about it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Think of a person. Think of your husband or your kids or your grandkids or a co-worker or a church person here or a person that you're working with in a community something. Where do you think you might fall with that person on this? It's just to get you to... To really draw out of you the fact that you are on this line somewhere. Go. Oh, okay, you talk well enough about that. Who are you pre- preparing the way for? I want to mention to us never ever negate or forget the place of prayer. Sometimes, for some people, all you can do is intercede for them. And maybe that's the most important thing of all. The place of prayer. I want to bring out one more thing today. Because I just put some extra things on there that you can take home and do in your um, devotional time. But I just am gripped by this one. John the Baptist combines repentance with fruit bearing. He combines repentance with fruit bearing. Look at chapter... 3, verse 7. A 
think it's also maybe in uh, Luke where it tells more, it expands what he says in this part, but Matthew is a little more concise here. Uh, Now, in the day that John the Baptist stepped into history, there were people who were God's people in name only. They considered themselves God or Abraham's children, so that's all. It didn't mean anything to them. It wasn't a live faith. It was just a dead kind of thing. And the religious leaders considered themselves children of Abraham, but they were abusing that privilege by sinning flagrantly. John enters the picture and boldly tells them to stop sinning and that if it's necessary, God could raise up stones to be his children. Probably indicating that Gentiles would eventually, you and I, would eventually be people who um, would be those stones. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 7 to 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. You know, that's not a really good, endearing term. You brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I want you to say that sentence out loud with me. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. One more time. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do you not think you can save yourselves? We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Uh, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I am mesmerized by this part. I think what he is saying is, uh, taking all that John the Baptist says, he says, God, when he comes into your, because remember he's preaching repentance, life-changing life, just life-changing. He says, when you really get this, when you really get that God transforms you as you are heartsick over your sin, that God will so transform your heart that your actions will be changed. Jesus eventually says that, doesn't he? James says that. The brother of Jesus eventually says that in the book of James. The issue and the lesson and illustration here is does our action or does our conduct back up our words? It's easy to say I'm a Christian. Jesus said that. Do my actions, does my conduct back up my words? Does my life match my profession of faith? Man, I think this is something Christians need to hear today. In other words, what are ways that Christians today abuse our rights as being children of God? Yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I've repented. Yeah, I'm on my way to heaven. la di da di da But what about my life? Is it reflective of Jesus Christ? Is it reflective of Jesus Christ? Around your table in just three minutes, I want you to answer this. So my life must back up my words. Even my words must back up my words. I mean, you know, I've heard a lot of Christians who claim the name of Christ who's swearing. I go, man. That heart's not clean and pure. In your own life, what's one place that you say, I used to be this, and Jesus really transformed that. Maybe my mouth, maybe my uh, belief about my spending, maybe my uh, way I treat people, maybe my, I don't know, fill in the blank. You'd say, I used to be this, but he really did transform. And I can say today, by the grace of God, 
This is transformational. Maybe you'd say your love for people. Maybe you just didn't care about people much. Maybe you, the way you treat your husband or the way you treat your mother-in-law. You'd say, God really did transform here. Should have had 100 tables in about 20 seconds each. Where did you really transform your life? Now I want you to think about one thing. I want you to take your pen. This is for you alone. On your note, guys, somewhere there. What's one place that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God still needs to transform your life? You're not going to share this with anybody. What's one place that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the transformational power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside you needs to change you still? A relationship? An attitude? Forgiveness? Shame? Your mouth? Your thought life? Something you're doing that nobody knows? An addiction? What's one place that you say, God, I know you want to transform this so that I look more like you. I want you to write it down. No, you're not going to tell anybody. Got it written. What did John the Baptist say? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Say it with me. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. My, my fruit has to look like my repentant heart. Really quickly, I'm going to throw out three or four more things that I want you to take home and think about. I'm going to have you talk about one of them. What else did John the Baptist teach? He taught us about the importance of baptism. Verse 6. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. place where I got to be baptized. Some of you got to be baptized about a year or two ago. Pretty special stuff, but it's pretty special to get baptized anywhere. He taught us about about baptism. Now, the Jews were familiar with baptism. They would have uh, Gentiles, if they wanted to become a Jew, they were baptized into the faith. And it meant that they, it meant a significant thing. They were literally like leaving the past behind, leaving sometimes behind their relatives and everything in order to be baptized into the Jewish faith. And Jesus comes along, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, and he goes to John the Baptist and says, baptize me. It was so hard for John the Baptist to even understand that he said, who am I to baptize you? You need to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, this is to fulfill the scriptures. You need to baptize me. John and Jesus pretty much showed that baptism was important. When I grew up, baptism was not real important to me. My church, my little Fountain City Wesleyan church, didn't have a baptistry, and so we didn't we didn't everybody get anybody saved hardly, so we didn't baptize. And then when I was a young adult here as a pastor's wife, John and I began studying the book of Acts more deeply, and we began to say, man, baptism was really, really important in the New Testament church. And ever since that time, it's become a really vital thing. I really believe in baptism. I just believe people need to get saved and get baptized. Around your table... In two minutes, I want you to come up with as many reasons as you can for why people today don't get baptized. If you have spoken a lot today, you go last. Some of you talk a lot. If you, but why? What are three or four reasons that people don't get baptized today? Just two minutes. Oh, one minute. Go. 
would you give me five reasons that people don't get baptized today? Perhaps reasons you have used. Why don't people get baptized? I got baptized as an infant. Yes, right. At Heritage, we believe that even though you were baptized as an infant, that was your parents' decision, your parents' choice, and as a committed Christ follower as an adult, it's your uh, right. Or it's your, um, it should be your choice to get baptized. That's one reason. Give me another one. Just don't think it's important. Yeah, why bother with it? I can love Jesus, get to heaven without being baptized. There is something biblical about getting baptized. Give me another reason. Lack of understanding. Some people just have never even heard that they should get baptized. Paula? Pride is a big one. I was hoping somebody would say that. I can't tell you the number of people that I have heard say, I want to get baptized, but I'll come up out of that and my makeup will be dripping and my hair will look terrible. Go, oh, dear, 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 I understand it. But take that reason to Jesus and see what he says. I want to tell you, there are some of you in here who need to get baptized. And I want to make it easy for you. And so in November, we're going to have a baptism for heartstrings. We're going to have a time when we just, uh, we'll have a lesson and we'll have food and we'll celebrate because um, a lot of times baptism became the celebration. So if you want to get baptized in November, I can't remember the date yet, I'll have to tell you later. Uh, I think it's like the third week of November or something like that. Um, on your sheet where it has your name, I want you to put a star by it. You can do it this week, you can do it next week, but I want you to consider getting baptized. And if you say, I just don't know if I can, go home and pray. See what the Lord says. Number five, really, really fast in four minutes, he exemplified humility. Oh my goodness, I just love it where he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. I gave you the scripture there, so make sure you read that this week. It's just so, so beautiful, so powerful. And I wonder in my own life, am I that humble before my Savior that he is so awesome and so mighty and so holy that I go, I'm not even unworthy to go down and and unleash your dirty, dirty sandals that you walked on on those streets, on those roads. And number seven, he had his doubts. Make sure you study this this week. He had his doubts in hardship. Eventually, he says to Jesus, he sends word to Jesus, he's in prison, and he says, um, are you the one that we're supposed to expect, or is there somebody else? And that's a heart-rending thing. He, he just had done everything to, to teach about this Jesus, to preach about this Jesus. He begin, He says, I must decrease, he must increase. He gets thrown into prison, and he sends word and says, are you the one? Are you the one? Or should I look for somebody else? Kind of implying... If you really were the one, would I be in this situation, Jesus? And Jesus says this beautiful, profound stuff about the fact that he's the greatest that's ever lived. And that really touches me to say he turned to Jesus in his doubts, not away from Jesus in his doubts. You may be here today saying, I've got some doubts. That's okay. Be honest with him. But go to him. Don't turn away from him. And number eight, he was faithful no matter what the price. Do you know what eventually happens to him? You can study it in Matthew chapter 14 this week. I really encourage you to do that. Um, he gets beheaded. Not a great happy ending until the fact, until the second later when he meets the Father in heaven. But he gets beheaded because he stands for truth so much that Herod, uh, or that, um, what's his name? Beheads him. Herod. Herod beheads him. Because he spoke truth. He said, you're living in sin. 
And Herod adds one more thing to his list of sins when he beheads John the Baptist. Around, um, as you pray now, I just want you to look over your list and say, where's the Holy Spirit speaking to you the most? Out of all those things. Maybe you just ask, you get baptized. Maybe you say, I need to run to Jesus and not away from him. Maybe you say, I need to let my life back up. My words. Maybe you say, I need to be more careful about the spectrum so that I'm more Christ-like, so I can plant more seeds. Maybe you say, I'll need to be willing to be noticed as a little bit different for my stand for Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that wherever you speak to us, oh, me included, I have just been touched so much by John the Baptist this last couple weeks. I just want to love you so much, so supremely, so completely, that I say, whatever you tell me to say, I'll say. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. Wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. I want that for my friends who bow before you right now. And I pray that all week, as we think about this lesson, and as we study deeper of this man of faith, that you would continue to prod us to be people who stand strong for the gospel. And because of that, then, as our words back up, as our actions back up our words, Lord, I pray that you'll plant tons of seeds from us. Just tons of seeds. Let your blessing rest on these women, especially those who are most discouraged today. Maybe they haven't even told anybody that. But maybe they leave here and go to a tough family situation, or they go to a tough um, work situation, or a tough financial situation or physical, or emotional. Lord Jesus, even today, let your word transform them. Let your word just churn inside them and bring them uh, just a sense of hope and faith and joy and peace. That you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Thank you for John the Baptist who prepared the way for us. Have a great week, and if you're new to heartstrings, remember to clean the table off. Have a great week, guys.